Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Georgia figured prominently at last week's James Beard Restaurant and Chef Awards. Mashama Bailey of the Savannah Restaurant, The Gray, won the National Outstanding Chef Award. The iconic Atlanta restaurant, Busy Bee Cafe, was one of the America's Classics Award winners and among the many finalists representing our city this year. Kevin Gillespie's Redbeard Restaurants Group was a finalist for the Best Restaurateur Honor. Later in the program, We'll listen back to my interview with Kevin Gillespie about his role on Top Chef All-Stars and hear about the camaraderie he enjoys on that show. First, multidisciplinary artist Jamel Wright Sr. creates works which showcase the spiritual relationship between Africa and the American South. His installations incorporate found objects, Dutch wax cloth, and Georgia red clay. Wright's work is featured in the exhibition Project Wall West on view at Kennesaw State Zuckerman Museum of Art through July 30th. The artist joins me now via Zoom. Jamel Wright, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Before we talk about your exhibition, Project Wall West, please tell us about the gallery you created in Atlanta, the Neo-Renaissance Art House. Wow, that was so long ago. It was like in 2005. It was at the end of Boulevard, right there by the penitentiary. And it was a gallery I created to kind of highlight young artists in Atlanta. Um, And I was selling art for under $1,000 for new collectors and young artists to be shown and to share um, and to create relationships. I found that in Atlanta, there was a lot of young artists with not enough places to show um, their work and not enough time for them to like really 
hone their talents and then have people to purchase the work to help to support them. So I wanted to create a space that highlighted those artisans. And I did it for about a year. It was a really good project and a really good gallery. Um, it was kind of hidden away. And I had quite a few people that were really upset when I closed it because of the impact that it was making in the small art community in Atlanta. Was it because of rent that you had to close? <laughs> yeah, kind of. It was, it was rent and it was, it was a lot of work. And I was also going through a uh, separation as well and dealing with kids and trying to figure out my life and what did that mean after all of that. So I often say that I gave up my life for art, Aww. but it is with a joy. I am probably happier in my life now than I've ever been in my entire life. Well, that's great to hear. Your work focuses on the Black American vernacular experience. Would you expand upon that? Sure. Like, I, you know, I grew up, I was born in the 70s. Um, I was born in 1970. And it was really at the catalyst between the civil rights movement and this new movement that was happening in the Midwest, right? Like we were just on the verge of creating what we now call the funk. But prior to that, the 1920s and 1970s was this, the great migration of African-Americans moving from the South to the North. In my upbringing, we go into the late eight, early 80s, and then you have hip hop coming out of this sound of funk. So all of this kind of like vernacular, these things that these black experiences that are happening around us, right? Gathering these materials such as funk is created because a lot of African-Americans were working in the Midwest in factories and then had more money than they were used to having and were able to give uh, music lessons to their kids. I received music lessons as a kid. My mother put me in dance classes. My mother put me in art classes. And then there's also the return of during the summer and spring, you're returning back to the South to see your grandparents and your aunts and uncles. So you're using all of these things around you, right? That's what that vernacular is. It's, it's that idea of all of those experiences of venturing down to the South and sitting on my grandmother's porch, watching the sunset as the train goes by and waiting till the street light to come on and my parents putting me outside to count the train cars as they go by in order so that they can just have a conversation without kids being around. So all of those experiences, I think include that vernacular experience. Hmm. Interesting, when I read that, about your focus on the Black American vernacular, I thought it was to distinguish Black American from Blacks in other parts of the world or Africa. Well, I mean, it, it kind of, it does to some degree, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, although African Americans are descendants of Africa and have a lot of traditions through by way of the South traditions that still kind of, we kind of still have some of those ideas. 
of those African descendants. We've created our own culture here in America, right? We are embedded in this land. We have put our hands in this land and we have grown rice and cotton and tobacco, even coal. Like there were even coal plantations here in the United States that the enslaved Africans would dig. So we are embedded in this land and created a culture within ourselves. And it's evident through music forms such as the blues, Mm. rock and roll, hip hop, jazz, gospel music, all of these things, all of these symbols are almost like artifacts. They're evidence of the experience that African-Americans, Black people in this country have imparted into the American thread, the American fabric. Definitely. In an interview with Arts ATL, you said, I'm quoting, I purposely try to create something so ugly that when you see it, it's beautiful. Right. Jamel, I don't see anything ugly in your artwork. Will you explain what you meant by that? I beat it to death. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really, I use that phrase because oftentimes, oftentimes when we see something, we believe that we could just take a picture of it and move on, right? And I believe that we as Black people, I believe that we as artisans, as artists, are creating something that is more than just an Instagram experience. A quick shot and you turn the page. And now with photography, I don't know if people even go back and look at their photographs. You just take a picture and you keep walking. So when I say that I'm trying to make something so ugly that is beautiful, what I'm really trying to do is create something that's so enormous in spirit, in visual language, that you have to sit there and you have to take it in and then see its beauty. Uh-huh. You know, I notice that like sometimes with people, people who we think we can just walk past we don't take enough time with, can sometimes take that moment with that person and find out something that we would have never thought that this person had in them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to get out of my work. I'm trying to get people to take the time to meditate, the time to consider, the time to understand another perspective, another way of thinking another way of being, another way of understanding, not just me as a person or not just a Black experience, but themselves. Wow. How do you use Georgia red clay in your pieces? I figured out a secret of how to make it into a paint. Oh. So I use it on the piece to include it into the painting. It's one of the final layers. I went to grad school at 45 years old, going on 46. And I took a huge bucket of red clay up there with me. So I'm up in New York with a bucket of Georgia dirt, right? (laughs) 
and they've never <laughs> seen anything like this before. Like, why is it red? <laughs> like, and I really felt like Georgia Red Clay has so many different relationships to it. First, I'll I'll explain like the, when I think about the great the big Pangea, right? The Pangea of Earth, it it being all one place. But when you separate it, the same land that's here in Georgia is the exact same land that you find in Ghana and Nigeria hmm. because they have that red clay as well. So I kind of use it as like this symbol for it being like this land bridge, this way of connecting back to this original country because all of us come from Africa, right? Yeah. So if all of us come from Africa, I'm reconnecting us back to our origin. I'm reconnecting us back to a, a deeper understanding. Um, and then as being in New York and coming back to Atlanta, um, this idea of going back and forth from New York to Atlanta, it's kind of that same thing of that great migration, right? I'm, I'm now leaving from Georgia and then going to New York and using it there. Also, we all know that living in Georgia, the red clay in itself is a stain, right? When, yeah. If you find it on the bottom of your shoes, if you find it on your clothes, then you walk into the house and you walk on the carpet, you may never get it out, right? It will Perfect. always be there. And that's kind of like what I wanted to put on my work. I wanted to kind of put this stain on it that it was always connected to me because the fabric in itself is a what we now consider an African fabric, but it's really a Dutch wax cloth, meaning that it is it was first made in Holland. And then they tried to sell it to the Malaysians and the Malaysians didn't take it. And then they sold it to the Africans and the Africans adopted it in, into their culture. And when they adopted it into their culture, it then began to have symbols for different regions. So I wanted to kind of connect that back to the African-American experience of using the same kind of quote unquote African fabric, this Dutch wax cloth and connect it back so that it sewn together we're reconnecting those ideas. And then by adding the red clay, I'm taking something that is kind of African and I'm then adding this Black American experience on top of it. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with multidisciplinary artist Jamel Wright Sr., Jamel, some aspects of your artwork bring to mind the Gullah Geechee quilts. Who taught you to sew? I learned how to sew in grad school. Ah. Uh, my grandmother used to sew quilts. Both my grandmothers sewed quilts. And my mother would always have a sewing machine. And when I was younger, I just always was fascinated by that machine. And then when I got to grad school, I wanted to start sewing. At first, I was sewing just regular paintings on canvas to the African fabric. And then I just fell more in love with the African fabric and separated it from that. Um, the idea of quilting is such a deep conversation of, you know, some of those Black vernacular experiences. But at the same time, I try to narrow 
the view of the use of the fabric because I respect what my grandmothers did and I respect those quilters that I would not want to call myself a, a quilter because I'm not using some of those same traditional tools. I'm kind of bringing that idea, those concepts of sampling, like hip hop sampling ah, yes. into fine art by taking these different thing, motifs that we know to be one thing and then sewing them together so they become something much larger. The Zuckerman Museum commissioned your piece, Reborn, number two, for this show. Would you describe it? Wow, it is 15 feet tall and 20 feet long. It is purple. <laughs> Prince is my favorite artist and purple is my favorite color. Is purple your favorite color as well, Lois? It is my favorite color. It has been since I was a little kid. Uh, what color purple do you like? I love all shades. I especially like those that tend to have more blue. I like mm. periwinkle yeah. and li lilac and sort of a blue-violet. Yeah, my mother really likes lavender. Yeah, and lavender. I really like that really rich, almost black purple. So I figured that, like, if I was going to make a piece that was going to have an impact, and I thought, if this was the last thing I ever made, what would I want to give the world? And that would be purple. And so it is incredibly purple, but it is, it's draped off of the wall. It has huge pouches on them that almost look like uh, they're like round and big and they're coming off of the piece. Those pouches are reminiscent of the, the gree-gree pouches that African-Americans would carry with them from oh. the South to the North. And they would like, they put good luck charms in them in this little leather pouch. They put them in their bag, in their, in their pocket. They would be like an amulet or maybe a perfume or their mother's ring or a rabbit's foot. Something that would give them good luck. So those are on there. And then I paint different glyphs on there, almost like graffiti on, on there. And then I drape it onto the wall and it starts to look like a, like a wave that's happening on the wall. I, I often think of it when I look at it, I think about like Rothko who says that he wants you to look at his paintings from 18 inches away because he wants you to get lost in it. And that's what I want. I want that when people stand close to it, that when they look from left to right, they're completely submerged in the work. Jamel, why is abstract art your preferred form of self-expression? So right now what's happening in America is this reemergence of, of Black portraiture. And it's really important right now because of all the things that we are dealing with in America with not just gun violence, but with the police murders of African-Americans that are happening here and that need to be recognized and the politics that's happening around the black body. 
I believe that abstraction is a wider way of telling some of these stories that is not always as direct. Sometimes these stories can be so literal. And when you see a portrait, you just see that one person. I believe that abstraction is a way of seeing multiple stories. It's as if a portrait would be a poem, right? Yeah. You're in the moment, you see the figure, and you're moved. But abstraction is more like a, like a novel with chapters, character development. It causes you to be moved. I'm not saying the portrait doesn't move us. I'm just saying that every time you see abstraction, you see something different in it. And it also can have particular meaning for the viewer, from viewer to viewer. Right. So people can derive from it something that may help them better understand themselves. Right. You know, I, I love abstraction. I love abstraction. And I try my best to help people to understand this beauty that happens in something that gives you an opportunity to meditate, gives you opportunity to consider. I, I said it before earlier, all the things that I want people to do in my work are the things that I believe that abstraction does. And that is, when you look at a Jackson Pollock painting, I mean, it, it's so hard not to get lost in the movement. When you look at Rothko, it's, I mean, to think about like how you feel like you begin to levitate when you're in front of them. When you look at Jack Winton, you, you feel like your body is shifting slightly to the left. And I think about people like Basquiat who recontextualize what language is and Cy Twombly that's able to give you a single mark and everything is in that mark. I'm talking about it right now and I, I feel so moved. My heart is, is swelling up <laughs> thinking about like how beautiful abstraction is and how, how it challenges us and how it encourages us and how examining abstraction is like examining an artifact, right? It's like these tell us not only the technology that's happening during the time by using acrylic or oil or oil sticks or spray paint, like these are all symbols of our time by the surface that it's painted on because you're no longer just using canvas anymore. It's not just a square anymore. I don't even use a square in my work anymore. You know, and then we're thinking about the way that we move through the world. Like I'm not, I'm not using canvas, I'm using textile. I'm not using just paint, I'm using the red clay. So using all these multimedia ideas and then coming into the work, you're examining all these items and connecting yourself to all of these different parts. And then you step back and ask yourself questions about who you are, about who this person is that created this and what, what do you have in common with this person? 
multidisciplinary artist Jamel Wright Sr. His exhibition Project Wall West is on view at Kennesaw State Zuckerman Museum of Art through July 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll celebrate Georgia's representation in this year's James Beard Restaurant and Chef Awards. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Last week, Mashama Bailey of the Savannah restaurant The Gray won the National Outstanding Chef category at the 2022 James Beard Restaurant and Chef Awards. Also celebrated this year, was the iconic Atlanta restaurant Busy Bee Cafe as one of the America's Classics Award winners. Additionally, multiple finalists represented our city this year, including Ticonderoga Club in the Outstanding Hospitality category and Kevin Gillespie's Redbeard Restaurants Group was a finalist for the Best Restaurateur Honor. Gillespie, whose restaurants include Gun Show and Revival, has also been a contestant on multiple seasons of Top Chef. When he and I spoke via Zoom in July of 2020, We discussed his appearance on Top Chef All-Stars, and he explained the natural camaraderie the show highlights. Everyone wants to share ideas across the table to improve each other. And so I think that when you take Top Chef All-Stars in particular, that sort of that idea has been brought to an, an entirely new level because not only do you have that industry related camaraderie, I think you also have a bit of the fraternity, if you will, of Top Chef, that everyone who was competing this season had competed before. Um, Anytime you have really high-level people who compete all the time, they have a tendency to lift each other up more than cutting each other down. And it's truly unique in Top Chef because of the fact that, in fact, you know, there really is only going to be crowned one winner. There's usually quite a bit of money at stake. 
But nevertheless, I'm, I'm really proud to say that I think everyone's um, sense of purpose and morality, maybe their professionalism, always overrides that desire simply to win. And, I, and that's something that I'm really proud of from Pop Chef. It also seems that during a short period of time, you bonded closely with the other chefs. Is there one chef among those you worked with this season who has since become a real friend? So, you know, going into the season, Brian Voltaggio and I um, were, were very close friends. We competed together on Top Chef Season 6. And, um, and so we were quite friendly before the show ever began. And in fact, I, to a certain degree, we kind of both decided to compete together. It was the decision was sort of mutual. Um, that being said, after meeting some of these people this season who I didn't know, um, I have become very good friends with Karen Atunowitz. She was someone that I, that I knew reputationally speaking, but I didn't know her personally. And I found her to be a, an incredibly intelligent person, a really empathetic person too. Someone that that understood the stresses and challenges of being a restaurateur and then not being in your restaurants while you're here, you know, filming a television show. That's a very unique emotional experience. And so uh, I think she and I became very close and have, have stayed in contact since, and I'm sure we'll remain friends for years. Were the chefs in touch? Were you in touch with each other as these episodes aired? <laughs> we actually were. We we all have WhatsApp on our on our phones, and we have sort of one big giant messaging board. And so every day when the when the show would be airing on Thursdays, you know maybe an hour prior to the show airing, you would you would start getting notifications that your fellow chefs were kind of messaging each other back and forth. And then as the show was actually on, we would kind of all just sort of sit there and watch it and and be and be messaging each other back and forth during the show. So it was always a lot of fun. Most of it was us kind of mocking or making fun of each other, just kind of playing around. Um, but at the same time, at the end of every episode, when someone got sent home, and, and again, we all, we all already know what happened, but in those moments, it was really special because everyone would, would send a message to the person who had gotten kicked off that week and a, a message of encouragement, something, you know, you're, you know, sort of validating how great of a chef they really are and reminding them that it's a competition and it's a television show. And so, to not take their loss too seriously, that it doesn't define them. Now, on this season of the show, you were able to enjoy some marvelous cultural experiences in Los Angeles and in Italy. Which events were particularly special for you? I think maybe one of the most special for me was the tribute to Jonathan Gold. I think that I've always admired his position as a food critic. I like to think of him more as a food writer. He was a man who always made it a point to showcase the best of people. He, he was not a person who wrote scathing reviews to, to hurt people's business or to bring them down. He really made it a point to share the story of people who he thought were special and who he thought was doing, who he thought were doing something special. And so having an opportunity to pay tribute to his life and his work was, was really unbelievable for me. When we made it to Italy, frankly, the entire experience was just absolutely grand. But what I really enjoyed more than anything, I think, um, was the truffle hunt. Uh, I am, I'm a man who I love the outdoors. I love any excuse to be outdoors. And I especially love the fall, which is when we were there. And just sort of all of the pieces of that together, the dogs, the, the smell, literally, the moment we 
stepped foot into the woods, you could smell the truffles. You didn't know where they were, but you could smell them. And it was just such an incredible experiential moment that uh, you hear people say a sense of place when they make reference to things. I've, I don't know that I've ever felt a stronger sense of place than in that moment. Oh, wow. Kevin, your restaurants and your cooking reflect your love of family. Gun Show was named for memories of time spent with your dad. Your grandmother was a huge influence on your cooking. Were there dishes you created on the show that reflected not only Atlantic cuisine, but the influence of family as well? Absolutely. I mean, frankly, it happened countless times. I think one of the best dishes that I made, though, that it really reflected family. It actually happened on Last Chance Kitchen. So after I had been eliminated from the Restaurant Wars episode, I had an opportunity to earn my way back onto the show by competing uh, in an alternate uh, show called Last Chance Kitchen, which is sort of like um, the quick fire component of Top Chef, but much, much larger. And I was asked to recreate a dish from childhood memory that was impactful to me now professionally. So that's hard. You have to find something that you remember, but then elevate it. And I had an opportunity to prepare um, a roasted trout with creamed corn. I'm sort of oversimplifying the dish, but it was an interesting dish because it had and it provided an opportunity for me to showcase something from a memory of my dad, the roasted trout from our fishing trips as a child. The cream corn, which is one of the very, very first cooking techniques I ever learned from my grandmother. And then at that same time, I was able to elevate the dish um, to add some elements that maybe are sort of current to my cooking today. I did um, a pickled tomato element that sort of has almost like a, a Vietnamese or a Laotian kind of quality about it that was inspired by a dish that I had at a restaurant on Buford Highway. And so I felt like that particular dish really showed where I am in my career right now. And I thought that it was a really nice way to, to bring some symbolism of, of all the different elements, you know, from my childhood, my upbringing, my career, and then, you know, what I find inspiring today and kind of wrap them all up into, into one plate of food. A special treat for classical music lovers was the challenge the chef testants had at Disney Hall with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And you were with their sensational conductor, Gustavo Dudamel. Kevin, it seemed you particularly enjoyed that experience, and you won the challenge. Would you describe the event? That was a really special moment. It was my first time inside Walt Disney Hall, and it is just stunningly beautiful. It is hard to describe to someone who hasn't seen it, even if you've seen photographs, really, you need to sit in the space to understand what's so special about it. That was a really beautiful challenge. I, I find music and food to be very cohesive with each other. I find that, frankly, a lot of people who admire or who practice music also admire and practice food. And so the two have a tendency to go hand in hand with each other. And there's a lot of words that we use when describing food, symphonic, for example, that really obviously have, have direct parallels. What I liked about that challenge was that we were asked to take what might seem initially to be contrasting elements, maybe things that don't work with each other. So in my case, it was sweet and salty. And I was paired with Melissa King, who inevitably was the winner of this season. 
And she and I created a dish together with our two different elements and made something quite harmonious. And I think that what's beautiful about that challenge is that it really showcases what it takes to be a great chef, which is just sort of this capacity to think outside of the box. And Gustavo made a comment. I asked him a question about how do you take elements that perhaps feel incredibly contrasting and bring them together? And he commented that he actually felt that those were the best things to bring together, that when you take high contrast and you find a way to weave them together seamlessly, oftentimes you end up with some of the most beautiful music you could possibly make. And I think the same could be true of food. When you can find a way to bridge highly contrasting elements, you make for very, very dynamic food. And so for me, I thought that challenge all the way across the board was one that was very easy to embrace as a chef, one that was very inspirational for, for the participants. You also drew some inspiration from the interior of Walt Disney Concert Hall. Is that correct, from the architectural design? I did, actually. This is something, you know, of course, that I never expected when uh, when we were there. I, I had my, my mind wrapped around this idea that I would close my eyes and I would listen to the music and that was that would inspire me but coincidentally because it's just such a beautiful space right when we sat down in the hall and maybe it was because it was empty and so you had really the opportunity to look around and and take in your surroundings I realized that this ceiling which is you know cup I guess you would say and it's obviously designed that way for acoustics resembles at least in my mind it resembles the shape of cabbage leaves um, that naturally have a cupped shape. And so um, maybe it probably sounded like the strangest thing in the world to mention it at that moment, but I just sort of instantly gravitated to this this idea that we were going to use cabbage and it was going to be a very literal inspiration, you know, as opposed to just sort of having to explain it conceptually. It was going to be very simple to say, we made cabbage because the room looks like cabbage, um, and it actually <laughs> turned out to be a very successful thing to do. Oh, it was. Both times that you were eliminated this season, it seemed you disagreed with the judges and thought differently about the food you prepared. No doubt that was frustrating, was that the most disappointing aspect of your experience? No, not exactly. You know, I will always advocate for the work that I do, uh, and I'll also always admit the mistakes that I've made. And I think actually in the Restaurant Wars episode, I felt like it was very appropriate for me to be sent home. Um, I did not think that we did as bad a job as they sort of implied. I think that to a certain degree, we had a bit of a victim of circumstances situation going on there, but without elaborating too much on that, I did feel it was important to stand up for my teammates, and I was okay with that. In the final elimination where I was sent home, I vehemently disagreed with the judges, uh, and still to this day have. And, you know, I think that's just part of being a creator. I think when you're someone who builds or sculpts or, or conducts, you put every ounce of your energy, every ounce of your heart and soul into it. And when, when you do that, there's a vulnerability that comes out that I think has a tendency sometimes when you face criticism um, to rear its head immediately in disagreement. I think that for me, I felt very strongly and do continue to feel feel very strongly about the food that I made in the final. Um, I think it was really beautiful. And I personally think that it represented the challenge better, but 
you know, unfortunately, despite my my greatest desires, they don't actually ask me how I think the challenges should be judged. So um, usually when I'm disagreeing, I'm mostly doing it for my own sake, I suppose. But in that particular challenge, I felt I felt pretty, pretty strongly about the fact that they had gotten it wrong. Now, that being said, it was not the most disappointing moment for me of the season. I think that the most disappointing moment for me of the season actually did come in the Restaurant Wars episode when I was just I was so exhausted from making the show and I was so frustrated from the way that that particular episode works because it's it's very demanding but it's also one that I don't particularly like the process to opening a restaurant in such a cavalier way I guess as a person who opens restaurants professionally I take that very seriously and it feels a little it feels a little forced to me uh, and I have a tendency to get in my own head about it. And so I think I made a lot of mistakes in that episode, including losing my temper on a couple of occasions. Um, that's not a, that's not really who I am as a person. I'm someone who is traditionally very metered and put together. And so I was embarrassed to have lost my temper. And then just having misspoke on a number of occasions in that episode. But nevertheless, watching that episode after it aired, I was a little embarrassed for some of those um, things that I did that I thought didn't really showcase who I am as a person very well. Well, it is so difficult when you are in the moment, and as you said, you were exhausted, and there are all these different comments being flung at you, and hearing what you said about still believing that what you did was fine, um, it just underscores how subjective art itself can be. I mean, it's not like an athletic challenge. Yeah, there are technical aspects, but it is subjective. Absolutely. And I think that especially once you reach the point inside a competition when the competition is so narrow in the sense that, that the margin of victory is incredibly narrow, you have to become, as it were, quote, nitpicky. But frankly, the only way to nitpick is to be subjective. Like all of the things that are very literal, have, they're already gone. No one has made any glaring mistakes. You're down to a point of deciding who you believe did the best job. And that is incredibly subjective. In visual art, when an artist, let's take Picasso, for example, chooses to paint in a, in a form of distorted reality. You could argue, well, you know, he didn't paint a face right. That's not what people look like. But that's not really the point. And so... When I think about sometimes the food that I cook, I have a very clear voice in the way that I cook. I think that most people uh, who know anything about food could probably pick out one of my dishes pretty easily in a blind lineup because it is very me, and I'm very expressive in my, in my food. What happens sometimes, though, is that when you do finally get to that point where the decision is a subjective one, it makes it very hard. You either They either like it or they don't like it because it doesn't. My stuff doesn't tend to be very middle of the road. Um, I, I don't think that it's uh, – I don't know that my cooking has ever been described as subtle. So it's uh, when you get to that point, it does come down to something purely subjective. And so for me, I think what's important more than anything is that I was extremely pleased with that dish. And so I'm okay because I can go home feeling very proud of the work that I did. Atlanta restaurateur and top chef competitor Kevin Gillespie. That conversation was recorded via Zoom in July of 2020, and you can hear the entire interview on our website, 
wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Jack. I play bass in Wayuka. Hi, my name is Jack. I play guitar in Wayuka. Hi, my name is Robert. I play drums in Wayuka. My name is Will. Hi, and I play guitar and sing in Wayuka. And Wayuka is an alternative rock band from Atlanta. We have some rap songs. We do some country stuff, but it's mostly alternative. met in junior high school in about 2005 and we started jamming together in my parents basement mainly playing covers of classic rock tunes such as Baba O'Reilly by The Who and My Generation by The Who as well. Definitely some Green Day songs as well and uh, we've been rocking together ever since. So one great thing about living in Atlanta is that you get to play gigs with a lot of diverse artists. You can play and there'll be like a hip-hop artist and a heavy band on the same bill. And I think that kind of thing just inspires us to maybe go for a more eclectic style. My favorite place to go see shows in Atlanta is probably the Earl, which I live an easy walking distance from with Robert. It's also one of our favorite places to play. Uh, another spot in the neighborhood that we love to play and go see shows is 529 on Flat Shoals. Same thing over there. They've got a great sound system, and uh, the staff is just a bunch of wonderful people. The story behind Love Shack involves making a kind of selfish parallel between ourselves and the B-52s. When we started out and for the first seven or so years that we were a band, we were based in Athens, Georgia, and B-52s are monoliths over there. They're one of the biggest things to ever come out of the town. And it's always struck me that Love Shack is a extremely happy, almost too happy song but it's them remembering the old times when things were simple, when Ricky Wilson was still alive, and just wanting to get back to those simpler days. Copernicus on 
to me, that's kind of how I was feeling after I moved to Atlanta and was going through a bit of a tough time. We were at Love Shack to kind of remember the simple house shows and the just crazy party days before everything got complicated. So we're playing AthFest in Athens, Friday, June 24th at the Georgia Theater. And our next Atlanta show is going to be on June 30th at Bog Social with some of our good friends, Monsoon, Heat, and Coma Therapy. And you can check out our most recent album, Burning Platform. It's our third record. We're super proud of it. It's got a lot of crazy stories on it. We hope you enjoy them. Alternative Rockers, Wayuka, and our series Speaking of Music. The band will play the Georgia Theater this Friday, June 24th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Two free classical music concerts are being performed tomorrow in Atlanta. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is back with their concerts in the park. The theme of tomorrow's program is Hooray for Hollywood, with music from movies such as Back to the Future, King Richard, Call of the Wild, E.T., and more. Food and beverages will be available for purchase on site, and patrons can bring outside snacks as well. The performance will take place on Piedmont Park's Oak Hill in the southwest corner of the park at 7.30 p.m. Speaking of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, a concert at Spivey Hall honoring Maestro Enrico Leide, the founder of the first Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, will be performed tomorrow, Wednesday, June 22nd. The orchestra originally was founded in 1920 and lasted until 1930 when the Great Depression struck. Grammy Award-winning composer and conductor Lucas Richman wrote a piece for the occasion, which will be performed by the Atlanta Musicians Orchestra. Maestro Enrico Leide's great-nephew, Dahlan Robert Leide Foa, is the principal conductor and music director of the AMO, he explained that Lucas Richmond accepted the commission with the condition that it be in honor of Maestro Foa's parents. So, Honora, my wife, Lucas, and I toured Rome, Italy, home of my mother, and Naples, Italy, home of my father, for three weeks. 
From those experiences, Lucas crafted a magnificent three-movement double concerto in appreciation for the love and work of my parents. The free concert will be at Spivey Hall and begins at 8 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about this year's Southern Fried Queer Pride Festival. Plus, music contributor Vaughn Phoenix joins us for this month's Punk Black To Go. And a look at the Atlanta Lyric Theater's production of Matilda the Musical. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at last. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.